Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Wade Newmark. Wade is the director of the Dales Nursing Home based in Devon, catering to the needs of those over 65. Wade, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Good morning, Scott. Uh, Pleasure to be on the programme. It's a real pleasure having you join us as well, Wade. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to establish your take on the topic of leadership, uh, really. And I think it's fair to say that leadership is something that's really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and business leaders, leaders of governments, organisations, communities having to feel their way through an unprecedented crisis. So for somebody working on the front line within care, such as yourself, how has it been adjusting to the challenges that the pandemic has brought about? Because I can imagine that they have been tremendous. Uh, Yes, they have been. been, There has been enormous pressure on on our industry. Um, One of the most interesting uh, features of the care industry in general and uh, on my face-to-face experience has been the type of people who've gone into the industry. And the, uh, if I can, if I can just talk more broadly and then, and then I will talk about our own leadership experience on a, on a broader level, um, a significant proportion of those who work in the care industry have come out of or have been trained by the National Health Service. So there has been uh, there has been a uh, uh, a uh, both a touching and rather naive belief that uh, central government and in turn the health service and in turn public health England uh, would be uh, competent, move with speed, and give clarity of direction and the reasons behind uh, their their pronouncements and direction. As we have seen. Um, uh, the, uh, the the outcome has not been quite up to their ideals. That this this in turn has resulted in 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 uh, in a great many care homes uh, having to adopt by default a wait and see approach, because this is what many of the leaders had been taught to do as part of their training to begin with. The other group of leaders uh, within the care industry have been. Uh, not not to a large degree, but there are a significant number of entrepreneurs who have gone into the care industry. And for them, the focus has been on maintaining the solvency of their businesses and getting uh, uh, their, their occupancy numbers as full as possible. Uh, more often than not, to the detriment of the well-being of, of the residents in situ when they began to admit further residents with COVID-19. Now, we all know the reasons for that. We know the reasons why the government was so keen to empty out the hospitals. But nevertheless, this was a, uh, you know, this was this was putting uh, economic interests above the well-being of uh, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of residents and, and, of course, our workers in our care homes. What we did was, down at the sales was a was a very different approach. My core assumption was when I saw what was going on in Europe, and again the media were very very clear, and it was very well documented specifically what was going on in Italy, which was, if you recall, the worst hit at the time. We decided to take immediate action uh, on the 11th of March, 
I am. I hesitate. To, I, I I do not hesitate to add that uh, that my manager down at the Dales, and I also had two other care homes, was highly highly experienced in infection control. She had been a lead nurse in uh, the intensive treatment unit, the ITU down at the um, Royal Devon and Exeter Hospital. So I was extremely fortunate that I had the clinical guidance and the clinical support that we needed to take the appropriate action. We did not wait to hear what the government was going to tell us what to do. What we did was we pursued sensible infection control measures. And we undertook three things immediately. The first thing we did was we immediately stopped visits from friends and family into the home. We immediately suspended all leave, effective immediately for our staff. And where possible, and I realize this is not possible for all homes, but where possible, we stopped using agency staff who were working in multiple locations, which in of itself would have brought an, un, an, an unacceptable level of risk into our home. And those three measures seem to have been very, very well throughout this crisis. The other two measures that we took effective immediately was to ensure there was 30 days supply of food. Uh, we have a very good chef at the Dales, a uh, very proactive guy. And last but not least, we immediately stopped up on the required protective equipment uh, gloves, masks, gowns. Uh, immediately, we put in a 30-day supply and very quickly acquired up to 90-day supply and have kept those levels topped up ever since. I hope that, uh, I hope that gives you some flavour of, uh, of the actions that we took at the day. Uh, for certain, and I think that it literally just embodies the fact that businesses within the uh, the care sector, care providers, have had to be proactive rather than reactive in the absence of decisive action and also amid the lack of clarity around government guidelines. And there's been a great deal of debate about just how clear that guidance has been, of course. Um, when it comes to frontline staff, uh, from your experience, the demands have been incredible, haven't they? I mean, a lot of care home workers have been living within the care homes throughout the pandemic to minimise the risk of transmission of COVID-19. And the fact that frontline staff are having to do just that and that people are having to adapt to remote working and are losing um, out on that sort of social interaction that little bit more, there's been a renewed focus during this period on mental health and well-being. Um, from your experience, how important do you think that mental health is in leadership, both in terms of looking after your own and looking after that of your employees? Wade? I think mental health is, 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 uh, is, is, is part of uh, the overall wellness of, of not only our residents, but also our staff. Um, I have taken a very holistic view of the well-being of my staff. In fact, from the get-go, uh, they work incredibly long hours, it's very demanding, even even before COVID-19 hit. Just turning to mental health, what what I have found is, is to offer a venue where people can vent, <laughs> be listened to, uh, have an open forum for suggestions, take notice of what they are saying, and also put those suggestions into action. Uh, you would be surprised how extraordinarily 
um, the extraordinary levels of initiative that are shown by carers, whether they are uh, qualified nurses of 20 or 30 years standing or or new people who have come in into the system uh, who have recently joined us from Exeter College. It has been quite extraordinary. If you listen, listening to your staff is a, is a very important part of it. The other important part which we have introduced is is small but regular events. Now, by this I mean a good example is having an afternoon tea. I know it sounds a very, very small thing, but introducing afternoon tea at four o'clock every day, even if even if it's for thirty minutes, uh, with the appropriate um, masks and everything else, because again, we are very, very careful that infection can spread amongst staff in canteens and that's been that's been highlighted with the NHS this week. Having that human interaction, having the ability to sit round the table, have a cup of tea, uh, a Victoria sponge cake, digestive biscuits, or what or whatever tickles your fancy. And just to be able to exchange ideas, vent, have a laugh and express your need to the manager, your immediate report, or indeed to me, I do try and join these things by Zoom when I can, has been incredibly helpful. I have to say it is not the big things which keep people's mental health on the on the level. It, 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 is, it is little and often. And for those managers and leaders who are listening, think of the little things focus on the little things, whether it's the Thursday fry-up, which I have in my Sussex care home. We actually bring in a full English breakfast for all the staff. It, it's an enormous benefit. Uh, or have a takeaway evening or even have Saturday cinema. These are not big things. They're not expensive, but they make an enormous difference to our morale and well-being. They do. And it's a real credit to frontline staff that they really brought out the best in themselves during this time of adversity. And that goes for people who have been going above and beyond in all sectors and um, in all walks of life during this time. And I can imagine that sort of seeing the way that they've applied themselves during this time, you've learned an awful lot from this period, not just about them, but also more widely in general about sort of the running of the business and even crisis management to a degree as well. Yes. Crisis management has been uh, it is it, it is something which most people never ever have to encounter. Most owners, uh, sometimes of three decades standing, have never encountered anything like this. The one clear thing that we have really learned about crisis management comes back to leadership, which is clarity of message, clarity of communication, and the bubble setting a path forward and having everybody understand what is the plan, not just for today or for the week, but the plan for the next quarter. And quarter by quarter planning has been incredibly helpful uh, in that regard. So if my experience has been, if people understand what is expected of them, if they have the opportunity to question, improve, and help you touch the tiller, it really helps managing the crisis enormously. What there is no place for 
in a crisis is stopping, building consensus, having an open discussion and a continuous dialogue about how people feel about a particular course of action. That is not a luxury that's been open to us. And I feel that moving forward, certainly the next quarter and probably the next six months, we will not have the luxury of that. We have to set a clear path, give the reasons for that clear path, and execute that plan accordingly. And with regards to future planning, as we move through the next stages of the pandemic over the next sort of 12 to 18 months and adjust to the challenges that the new normal that everybody's talking about is going to bring. Um, what do you envision being next for yourself and for the Dales Nursing Home? And what do you hope to achieve just before we wrap things up on the programme today? What we're doing is we are, we are endeavouring to make communication with our friends and family, with the residents, easier. So to that end, we've already begun preparations in having much more accessible technology for FaceTime. Uh, you would be amazed seeing a 102-year-old resident on a FaceTime with their great-granddaughter. It's a, it's, it's a heartwarming thing to see. The other thing that we are doing is make physical changes and adjustments to not just our ability to compartmentalize the home in the event of an outbreak, but just as importantly, to have a structure in place for garden visits, which I also believe are here to stay, uh, which will permit social distancing, but a degree of social interaction in the fresh air, in a pleasant environment of a garden with trees, with birds in the background, which will at least go some way toward giving respite and enabling our residents to enjoy visits from their families, which, after all, is incredibly precious and so important to their well-being. Seems like there's some fantastic plans on the uh, the horizon um, as we enter these times of uncertainty, uh, Wade, for sure, because there are still many variables as to how the uh, the pandemic is ultimately going to pan out. And, you know, given that it's one thing speculating about what might happen and it's another entirely waiting to see what happens and then reflecting, I think it would be most insightful to have you back on the programme in a few months' time to catch up and see what exactly has gone on in the time between and also understand what's going on behind the scenes at the Dales Nursing Home as well at that point. I would welcome that very, very much and look forward to speaking with you again. It would be a real pleasure for myself as well, Wade, just as it's been having you on the programme today. I thank you once again for taking the time to join us. And most importantly, do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on in the meantime, because we're certainly not out of the woods with this yet, for sure. Thank you and good health to your listeners as well. And for those tuning in, do continue to remain home where you can do be sensible look after yourselves and stay safe because it does make a huge difference in saving lives i was speaking just now to wade newmark director of the dales nursing home in devon coming up next on today's program i'll be handing over to matthew o'neill for his exclusive interview with former education secretary lord blunkett um, during his political career lord blunkett became one of the most prominent politicians of his generation holding a number of senior positions in the cabinet of tony blair and sir 
serving as the MP for his Sheffield Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blanket of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope that you enjoy listening to the current chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council 
will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good, as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. 
And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, 
chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, Mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, these kind of things you you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will 
make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges, and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of 
low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent, a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond 
Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can 
support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government. Mm-hmm. But also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn Mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.